Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Michael Johnston, and this is the uh, New Books in Sociology, a podcast on the New Books Network. And today I'm meeting with Dr. David Sloan uh, on his book, Is the Cemetery Dead? Dr. Sloan teaches courses in urban planning, policy, history, and community health planning. He earned his doctorate degree and master's degree in American history from Syracuse University, Maxwell Graduate School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. He currently facilitates Borthwick George Washington Lecture Series, a USC Price project in collaboration with the Fred W. Smith Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. Dr. Sloan's research examines urban planning and public health, health disparities, and community development in public and private commemoration. He is the author of The Last Great Necessity, Cemeteries in American History, published in 1991, co-author with Beverly Conant Sloan of Medicine Moves to the Mall, published in 2003, and is the editor of Planning Los Angeles, published in 2012, as well as articles and book chapters on related research topics. Again, thank you, Dr. Sloan, for joining me on this podcast today. I'm uh, pleased to do it, Michael. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Is there anything else that I missed in your biography that you'd like to add? Oh, there's always things in your biography. I'm sure there are, as yours and mine as well. I, I mean, I have had a, a wonderful career where I was able to do both history um, around cultural landscapes and changes and uh, urban planning and urban uh, dynamics or sociology uh, around crime and food. And so it's been an, a really great time for me. Well, what we're talking about today uh, is your book, Is the Cemetery Dead?, Cemeteries go back for centuries. There uh, have always had to be something to, uh, in terms of doing, doing away with uh, uh, wasted bodies, bodies that are, are no longer living, and finding a place to pl- uh, put them and commemorate them. And again, I, I think oftentimes funerals are for the living, not the dead. So uh, what was your trajectory in terms of, uh, in terms of doing this research? And uh, and then how? What did you find about the trajectory that cemeteries have taken in terms of their design across time and place? Okay, so I've written two books about cemeteries. The first was my dissertation that was turned into a book at Johns Hopkins University in 1991, "The Last Great Necessity," which was a pretty standard history of the uh, development of the American cemetery from the 18th century to the middle of the 20th century. Um, I finished that. It did well. Uh, everybody seemed to like it. Lots of reviews, good reviews. And uh, so I moved on to other topics. Uh, in 2004 or five, right in there, someone came back to me and said, will you redo your book, revise latest Great Necessity? I thought about it. I checked things. I made a decision I didn't really want to do that. Um, and so I, I sort of started playing with a book about uh, – how would I think about the cemetery today? Uh, it didn't go anywhere very uh, well for quite a long time. 
uh, in 2007, my my wife passed away from a stroke, and uh, one of the results of that event was that some young people came up to me, younger people typically, it wasn't entirely young people, it was largely young people, came up to me and said, why do we need a cemetery? And uh, why do you want to inter your wife in a cemetery? And at that point, I began to think about how the first book had really been about the rise of the modern cemetery, the emergence of the elements of that cemetery. And I started to go around the web, read a bunch of stuff in the sociological uh, sociology of death, um, which is mostly about uh, people and their their process of dying rather than, than people who are actually passed away. I read a, a whole group of things about culture and memorials and public spaces. Um, and at the end, I decided that there was a different kind of book than the standard sort of classically researched socio- uh, history book that I had done the first time. And this is the result of this is, is The Cemetery Dead. And in The Cemetery Dead, I take three large uh, themes that are crucial to the way we think about cemeteries, nature, mourning, and memorials. And I unpack how the conventional cemetery treated them and has treated them over the last century or so. And then I have a chapter on how reformers or critics are trying to challenge that convention. And then a final little bit shorter response uh, chapter on how cemeteries have attempted to um, respond to those criticisms. And what I basically found was that during the 20th century, it started as as early as 1830s, but really uh, consolidated and, and synthesized in the early 20th century when Americans increasingly d- depended upon institutions to care for their dying and their dead. So you started out by going from the home to the hospital, um, and increasing numbers of people did not come back from the hospital. They died in the hospital, or they died in an ancillary, the nursing home. Then uh, their bodies were taken to a funeral director. They weren't taken home and cleaned by the relatives. They were taken to a professional um, and then that casket filled body, that body put in a casket was then taken to a church um, and had a funeral. And then uh, that uh, body was then taken to the cemetery where it was professionally buried and uh, overseen and cared for by people, cemeterians or uh, people who were superintendents of cemeteries. What we did, what I discovered was that in the, middle of the 20th century, and it really is, I think, 1970s, 1980s, into the 1990s, this uh, institutional framework begins to fray at the edges. It's still very much true for millions of Americans that they do exactly what I just said. But uh, a number of people came from a number of different perspectives and wanted a difference. So instead of dying in the hospital, they wanted to to die in the in the home or in this uh, this this in, this new place that it was created in the in England and other places in the 1940s, and that was the hospice. 
So it felt more like home, less like an institution. Then they moved the body. Uh, instead of moving the body to the funeral director for them to be embalmed and other things to happen to them, they moved it to the funeral director, perhaps, or to a cemetery, and they cremated it and thus gained back control over the remains because cremation is final disposition. Then they either went to the church or increasingly they went to a local park, a local rec center, a local community center, someone's house, and had a memorial service where the focus was on the celebration of life, not on the religious orientation of the individual. And then finally, because they now had control of those remains through a cremation, they scattered them, uh, they, they, they kept them in the house, uh, they even began to do uh, very unusual things like turn them into jewelry or, um, in exceptional cases, uh, use part of those remains to ink a, tattoo, a memorial tattoo on their body. And so, in some sense, the sociology of death is the same as it's been over the last 100 and 150 years, but it also has this these, these environmental DIY um, cultural changes that have affected the way we imagine what is possible for someone who has died. And with your expertise in urban planning and policy, I'm certain that maybe you've taken some time to look how uh, place has been made. And uh, in the process of placemaking, it's more than just space. The city responds uh, to the way in which its citizens are are acting the way that its residents are acting and there's this reciprocal relationship that's ongoing back and forth between uh between the community and its members so then how has uh how has society responded you make a, a couple references to uh to these uh bikes that are uh death bikes i believe if i remember ghost the bike reference. ghost, ghost, ghost bike. bike yes Ghost bikes, bikes, as well as several other memorials, such as street memorials that uh, are sometimes torn down. But uh, please elaborate on how the city has responded to these non-traditional death rituals. So, institutionally, the the city officials believe in this older system of death. They believe that death should be isolated, segregated, institutionalized. And so when, uh, particularly taking off in the 80s, but I think after Princess Diana died and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. died, and we saw these enormous responses on roadside shrines, uh, people began to bring death back into the place, as you would put it, and back into their lives. Um, and they began to demand space within the place for death. Uh, two really uh, important examples, is, of course, is the proliferation of roadside shrines, which became, I would argue, have become sort of okay uh, as far as most city officials are concerned and uh, okay as far as most Americans are concerned. That as long as they're not too intrusive, as long as they're not too in the way, um, I think most Americans uh, have come to accept, and, and, and it's very pervasive. It's, it literally is all over the country, and of course all over the world in different forms. Um, ghost bikes are, surprisingly to me, 
a variant of the roadside ride. So a ghost bike, which many people have seen but they don't really know is, is where a cyclist is hit by a car and killed. Um, and someone gets an old bike and they paint it a spectral white and they place it on the space of the death, um, on the location of the death, and or as close as possible. And then they actually memorialize, they have a memorial service at that ghost bike. And they might, in addition, have a memorial ride, and this may happen over time, may happen several times, where anywhere from five to 500 cyclists will join in, in this. So the ghost bike is different. The, in some real interesting way, the, the roadside shrine is the sort of typical roadside shrine with the, with the little teddy bears and the crosses and the lights and the notes uh, is viewed as um, okay. It's very sentimental. It's a little nostalgic. It's very personal. The ghost bike, though, gets directly into the conflict that is real, very real, in many cities across the country between drivers and uh, pedestrians and, and cyclists. And so the ghost bike is viewed by city officials, at least anecdotally. And I, in, in the book, I don't try to make this argument any more than anecdotally. It's viewed by city officials as an aberrant, a deviant uh, uh, item in their larger space. And they are much more likely to pick them up now, this has also begun to change. Uh, places like New York City have in their directions to the the street people that they um, will pick them up. I mean, that's in the official uh, sort of regulations. And then they have uh, informal statements where they will not pick them up. And so there, there's this conflict between them. Partially, I think this is because the ghost bike is not just a representation of death. And I think that's hard for city officials who believe the spaces should be uh, should be given to the living or, or focused on the living. But it also is a political item that suggests that the roads should be safer for pedestrians and specifically for cyclists. And that causes uh, uh, angst, as we've seen in many cities across the country, uh, over the debates of uh, bike paths. Uh, pedestrian walkways, scrambled intersections, etc., and this just fits into that larger debate. And with these, uh, with these uh, informal, these uh, new wave ways of commemorating people, uh, not only locally but globally as well, do you see them as uh, having somewhat of an economic and political undertone, such as a way for tattoo artists to make money and ways for uh, politicians to uh, to have a narrative in such ways as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the National right. September 11 Memorial, USS Arizona. Right. And so I think the economic consequences are both uh, towards entrepreneurial and uh, anti-institutional. So for the institutions, these changes create havoc. Uh, the number of funeral homes has declined. The revenues to cemeteries has declined, um, and so you ha have this circumstance where um, that the, if you will, the liberalization of death practices creates real problems for those institutions that have been built up over the last half century and a half. At the same time, there's new entrepreneurial ideas 
tied to the reforms that people are requiring. So you get the development of natural burial cemeteries, uh, natural burial grounds, um, who are offering a simpler, more natural way to have your person die and to have them uh, buried and commemorated. And you have, as you suggest, you have a number of tattoo artists and other artists who are developing not just uh, memorial tattoos, but there's also a lot of different kinds of cremation urns. There's a company that's now creating uh, a sort of compressed uh, animal figures for uh, spreading ashes in uh, the ocean um, because though you don't get the ashes blown in your face by the wind. And so there's there's a lot of people. There's there's a number of people who are trying to figure out how to uh, memorialize people on the internet, and so there's a number of both free sites and uh, pay sites where you can um, remind remember your person on the internet. So there's a lot going on. Um, much of it's still very experimental. And then, so for instance, the number of people actually being buried in natural burial grounds is probably tiny compared to those who are being buried in uh, conventional cemeteries. But one of the things that I found very quickly was that a number of conventional cemeteries are now offering natural burial sections within their cemetery or opening new natural burial uh, uh, cemeteries next or adjacent or near their cemetery because they're seeing this as a, uh, as a as a trend that they have to respond to to preserve their institution. And then the the political narrative with the ah. uh, with the more with the larger uh, commemorations like the National yeah, yeah. September 11th Memorial. Uh, how do you see that as being politicized? So I think that uh, sorry I, I forgot the other part of your question. Uh, the the politics is really still in formation. So we've had uh, uh, three quarters of a century, if not two centuries, of debate about how do we um, commemorate uh, those who are fallen. Um, you know, Andrew Shankin's work on uh, living memorials uh, really. I think highlights the debate of the 20th century. Do we need another figure, figurative sculpture on the common for another war? And then, of course, Maya Lin's uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial sort of uh, uh, disrupts the traditional idea of the monument. And what's interesting, I think, since um, Maya Lin is that I think we've seen two paths taken. Uh, one is that disruption is is accepted or is uh, adapted, and politicians and artists uh, together try and find some way to personalize and to um, so let me put it differently. They try and personalize commemoration uh, in a in a in a in in some sort of structure or some sort of sculpture that uh, allows the visitor to have some control over their experience of that monument. And I think the new uh, the new Hope Museum on lynching uh, and others are extraordinary examples of that. On the other side, the politics of commemoration uh, might use part of the form, say at the World Trade Center Memorial, 
but it's also much more conventional in the way that the rhetoric around it is. And of course, the classic example of this uh, would be uh, the monument to the World War II veterans on the National Mall, which is just a short walk from Vietnam Veterans Memorial, where they use some abstracted, like the gold stars, but the overall is very nostalgic uh, to earlier monuments uh, that could easily have been constructed uh, 75 or 100 years earlier. And so I think those are both happening, and I don't think we have any resolution uh, between them. Then there's a third path, and that is where um, in the local areas, people are, are not waiting for a politics. They're essentially demand, you know, they're, they're essentially saying, I'm going to commemorate my person in public, and if the politician doesn't like it, let them lump it. And so I think there is sort of a, a groundswell of, you know, death is important to us and we are we want it in our communities. And if you're not for it, you're against it. It's interesting. Uh, in today, uh, in today's society, it's, it's, it's with mass media. It may even be a, a, a post thought because it's so much so much information is being distributed that all of a sudden what was once new is no longer even being talked about. But uh, what I'm thinking of is even when uh, memorials are being torn down, we have this push and pull uh, yeah. of select selective memorial. Right. And so it is uh, – I think we have been reminded in the last 10 years of something that's been true for a really long time, uh, you know, whatever it be, a thousand or whatever it is. And that is monuments have meaning and that that meaning uh, uh, is not fixed, that it's situational. And that when a culture changes, the meaning of their monuments change. And so, you know, I think as as a society for a very long time, we were willing to tolerate uh, monuments that we knew represented um, attitudes and uh, positions and people who were um, somehow aberrant to what we hoped for, but they were people who, in the local terms, represented something positive. So uh, the classic one would be the Confederate memorials, which in some sense had dual purposes when they were put up between 1890 and 1940. And that was, they were to send the message that, you know, white supremacy was real and was right. And it also sent the message that somehow America had a common heritage and the civil war was common to all of us. And this was true in many history books as well. Uh, You know, I, the first course I ever TA'd in at Syracuse was, uh, uh, taught by this brilliant, uh, wonderful guy named Mike Fouché. And he got up the day we were going to talk about the Civil War. And he said, I grew up in Louisiana. So I found out when I was 13 that the South had lost. And uh, we all looked at him like, how is that possible? <laughs> but, the, you know, in his life, all the monuments around him were to the members of the Confederacy. There wasn't any, you know, victory monument for the Union there was just this nostalgic view of the Lees and the Jacksons and all Jeffersons and the rest. And so um, I think we, in the last decade, have come to realize that that 
search for commonality that everyone so desperately wanted um, and the willingness to tolerate the supremacist attitudes that those monuments represented is just increasingly untenable in a diverse and uh, complicated society like ours. That doesn't mean they're not going to be people who are going to fight like hell to keep them. And it does raise the question of how far does that uh, questioning of that commonality go? Um, the city of Los Angeles is about to take down a monument to Christopher Columbus, and it's uh, is quite controversial um, for lots of different reasons and should be controversial for lots of different reasons. But in some sense, the, what are we willing to accept as our common heritage is the the thing we need to debate and discuss and decide, I think. And that's a question that uh, we're going to be discussing for a while. And at least it opens up the uh, channels of communication. Because otherwise, it's either it's just accepted or it just it goes away in the night and nothing just passes by in the night anymore, I don't, I don't think. I think it's very hard. And uh, to, to add to that, even, uh, um, even moving these to uh, something behind the scenes would be, be uh, would be better than to just leave them where they're at. Because even if it is only symbolically, we are a United States of America, and to be united, we have to have a common bond and a common dialogue of who we are and what we are. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I think you're absolutely correct. But the question becomes, what is that common dialogue? And for a very long time, that common dialogue was that the South redeemed itself in Reconstruction from uh, an awful war that was caused by dissension that didn't make any, you know, really had nothing to do with race. And I think as a society, we're better and better, even though we're awful, at recognizing that race is part of the DNA of this, and racism are part of the DNA of this society. And so one of the things I like best about the material I cover in the book is that many of the elements of the this new commemoration uh, are actually coming out of a diver- our diversity. So um, in the 1970s, the first Latino communities in, on the West Coast began to celebrate Day of the Dead. Now we have Day of the Dead celebrations in lots of places around our country. Um, it's a recognized holiday in a number of places. And so um, that's a direct influence of Latino culture. I mean, I think we can, we, can, we can complain about the loss of commonality too easily, but I think in some sense we are constructing a new commonality that recognizes our diversity in a much more healthy way. And I do think that bringing back of commemoration the recognition of the dead, which is much more vibrant in Catholic countries like uh, Canada and Quebec or Greece or Ireland um, and then Mexico. And then the transference of that emotion back into our streets is a very positive thing for the society. Um, so what do you believe the, the future of uh, burial and alternative means to dispose of and commemorate the departed is going to be? I know you're a historian, historian and looking to, the, uh, looking to the future is sort of dangerous, but uh, if you're willing to take the risk, what do you think it might be? 
Yeah, I used to tell my students. In fact, I still tell my students. You get me near the near the present, I get itchy. You talk to me about the future, I'm in trouble. Um, there are a couple things we do know that's or we're pretty sure that are going to happen. One, cremation is going to continue to rise as a percentage of those uh, dispositions in the country. The current uh, number is roughly 48 or 50 percent. And most uh, people are predicting that by 2030, 2035, it will be somewhere between 60 and 75 percent. That has all sorts of implications. Uh, for us as a society, because much of what we depended upon in the 20th century was the financing model of full body burials in cemeteries as to create places of um, of commemoration. And as people move to scattering more, uh, keeping their ashes themselves or doing other things with them, that changes that dynamic dramatically. In some sense, it will dramatically privatize the disposition of the dead. So I don't need to have 50 people there when I scatter my grandmother's ashes. I, I might have two or four or eight who really knew my grandmother. And so the idea of the collectiveness of death may actually be extent, uh, may, may take a, 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 a hurt as we sort of privatize. At the same time, uh, with the internet and other ways we are watching as people who scatter sometimes create uh, memorial sites on internet cemeteries, virtual cemeteries, and in some sense, that's the recreation of that old collective good. So I, it, it's hard to know the implications for connections, social connections and social networks within a, in a society. Um, I do think environmental stuff is going to continue to grow in importance as uh, as we experience greater climate change. I think um, that the idea of DIY, we should do it ourselves, is going to grow in a culture where that's become more and more powerful. Um, but as I do in the epilogue to the book, I lay out a series of scenarios and I'm not trying to say one of these scenarios is going to happen. I don't know which one is going to happen, and I'm pretty confident that it will be multiple of them that will happen. But I do think there are some things we can understand. Um, and I think the big one is, you know, if you're cremated, the family regains control of the ashes and the remains, and that changes how much or how you relate to the institution. And environmentally, you you brought that up, and, and thank you for yeah. doing so. Uh, there is some environmental concern about the disposal of these bodies, right? There's these uh, two alternatives that you talk about, but then also even in cremation, the right. fear of all of the smoke and uh, waste going up into the clouds uh, versus this alternative where it's going down into the drains. Could you could you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So the the initial uh, criticism of the cemetery is pretty long-standing, but it's gotten much more sophisticated. And that is that the cemetery requires the use of too much, nat too many natural resources. So we're using steel, we're using concrete, we're using pesticides, we're using land um, in ways that just seem very inefficient. Um, and so there has been criticisms of the, of the cemetery that go way back, indeed, to the 1870s when cremation became a real possibility with the development of the first internal uh, crematory. Um, 
Then in recent years, in the last, say, 20, 30, maybe 40, but really 30 years, people have begun to critique the environmental impacts of uh, fire cremation. And there are essentially two or three different ways that they do this. The first, again, is natural resources. Most of them are gas-driven retorts who use, that use a significant amount of resources. The second is that they burn the body, just like, a, you know, uh, and many of them are burned in a pine box or even in an expensive uh, hardwood casket. And so that's that's all particulate matter going up the up the chimney. And then there's this particular one where our our teeth and uh, fillings in our teeth and others have mercury in them, and that is being dissipated as well. To some extent, the industry has responded to this with scrubbers on on crematories, new generations of crematory uh, crematory uh, crematory retorts are better, more ecological, but there's a group of people who have argued that we need to dramatically rethink this. And they uh, favor mostly, I mean, there's a lot of different ones, but they mostly favor um, what is known as acclimation. And that is where you use alkaline hydrolysis to uh, dissolve the body. The most, most of it turns into a fluid that goes down the drain. There's a white powder left over, and that is, that's essentially a, a cremate, cremated remains. And this uses uh, somewhere between 10 and 20% the various, the, the, the uh, estimates vary uh, of this energy that the other process, it has basically no uh, significant environmentally dangerous uh, output because the, the liquid that goes down the drain is sterilized. And so, uh, that's been pushed by a number of people, uh, and so I, you could see that grow. It's, there's been some cultural uh, reaction. I was sitting at a talk um, in uh, Sweden, actually, and the young man behind me was a religious professor, and he said, uh, is this the beginning of the matrix, right? Is this you know how we imagine how human bodies should be treated? And so there's some of that, and that has caused the, pol the pol politics of aquamation to be um, complicated in places like Ohio and New, and, New, and New Hampshire. So there's not a lot of places you can get that right now, but it is a growing number of places. And we're going to see those kinds of experiments with envi more environmentally sound. But then you have the other people say, you know, don't cremate. Do a natural burial. Put your body in a shroud, no embalming put your body in a shroud and put it in the ground or put it in a hemp or a bamboo uh, casket, put it in the ground, plant a tree and go. We'll just let it go and, and, and accept that your body is part of the extraordinary uh, ecological web in which we live. And that has definitely grown in, uh, in popularity. It's still very tiny, but it's definitely growing in popularity. And Dr. Sloan, I think it varies. I think it's very complex in terms of how we see, uh, how we see death and how we think, uh, commemoration of the body, uh, should be, uh, should be taken care of, uh, based on a lot of variables. Everything from uh, religious dogma to, uh, to the outlook on, on age of a death of a baby dying compared to somebody who has lived a long, uh, healthy lifestyle and, and was prepared to rest. Yeah, I, I, you know, religion plays a huge role here. So Orthodox 
communities are much less likely to embrace the, the experimental and innovative approaches to death, much more likely to be traditional in the way that they handle their dead bodies, much less likely to cremate. Uh, and so it matters how you your culture matters and how you're going to react to this position and where dead uh, play a role in your lives. Um, it's uh, there's also and so cremation rates dramatically differ between Hawaii, where I think it's above 85 percent now, and uh, Mississippi, where it's somewhere around 16 or 17 percent. And don't hold me to the exact numbers, but it's somewhere around those. And so it's a dramatic a variation, and a lot of that seems to be with traditional ethnic and immigrant cultures. So African Americans are less likely to to cremate. Um, and with the addition of the religion. So more evangelical, less will, less likely to cremate. And does that matter? Of course it does. It's not just religion. It is the broader culture in which we live. If everyone around you is being buried in a cemetery, it's likely that you're going to be buried. But one thing we have to keep in mind is there's a really nice little study done in Philadelphia where this man interviewed a number of African-American women whose children had been uh, killed uh, through in a homicide, and they had just put up a mural to their to their memory, and the woman said, "Yeah, my son is buried in a cemetery that's pretty far away. I don't go there very often. I come here to memorialize him, like to remember him. I'll sit with a few of my friends or with a, by myself and just remember my son. And people will drive by and say, hey, uh, I miss you know Antonio or whatever his name, whatever the son's name is.' And so, um." I think that one of the ways we can think about what's happening, and I try and show this in the book, is it doesn't have to be either or. So you may use part of the institutionalization, and you may actually do use part of it experimental, and they may complement each other. They may not be um, different than each other. They may actually be similar um, in the way that you interact with it. Now, it may not be how the whole culture looks at it, but for you, it fits that you want to have the person die at home, but you also want to use a funeral home. Uh, you want to have the ceremony in, in your friend's favorite, your family member's favorite park, but you're going to bury them in a cemetery. So I think right now, at least, there's a, 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 a cultural hybridity, which I find uh, very positive and very complex <laughs> at the same time. And, and, but I think overall it's a, it's a positive thing. Well, I think so. And if, if everybody was being buried, I, I don't know that uh, our country or our cities could manage it because uh, we continue to build out and, and there's uh, the way in which land is used is not the same that it was used centuries ago. No, and there's a considerable number of research done by urban planners and others about the scarcity of grave sites um, we are, in many cases, most cemeteries are constructed, are established before 1950, 1960. And so there's not a lot of new cemeteries being uh, established. And, there, and so many cemeteries are coming to the useful end of their 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 life. I mean, they themselves are not necessarily dying, but they're they're not burying as many. We have had a lot of spaces created since the 1950s for cremation remains in churches and other places around the city. 
but even there, there is a, you know, people there, some of them are quite expensive and it's not clear how people are going to react. I, I do think that the scarcity of spaces may become an issue. I don't think it is so far, except for in driving up costs, but I think it may become an issue down the road, uh, at least according to the estimates that a number of people have brought up. Well, thank you for your yeah. contribution to this research. And uh, as a collective, it, it adds to our knowledge and it uh, and it helps us in, in exploring it further. So uh, we're about out of time here, but one thing I always like to ask my authors is, what are you working on now? This was published in 2018. It's almost 2019, so you probably have uh, more articles out there, and you're probably working on your next book. I am actually doing both. Uh, one is going a little faster than the other. Uh, so I do do uh, work on contemporary urban planning issues around food and and uh, crime, uh, much less about crime than I used to. It's mostly about food and physical activity now. And we are trying to get a project off the ground right now about how the the new refugee concerns and immigrant concerns are affecting uh, immigrant incubator communities' relationship to food systems. And then um, the longer term, which I hope isn't too long, uh, is that I've been working for a while with uh, my my wife, who's an artist, and one of my former doctoral students, uh, Brittany Shannon, on a book that uh, essentially uh, looks at how art can protect neighborhoods rather than serve as a gentrifying force. And looking, interviewing, doing deep interviews with individuals in Los Angeles to try and talk about that. And that's really the two big ones right now. There's some other things happening, but those are the two big ones. Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading your uh, upcoming books and inviting you back onto the show yeah. uh, once they're published. Uh, those sound excellent. Uh, uh, well, thank you. Okay. My pleasure, Michael. You take care. 